as of our text, thus speaks the Lord of hosts. Saying, this people says, the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earn wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I call for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil. And whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hand. Lord, we thank you for your word. Indeed, as the challenge is poured out and declared in the text to consider always, we stop this morning to consider our ways. Not about building a physical temple, but we ask ourselves, is the temple of God, our bodies, lying in ruins while we do our own pleasure open our eyes this morning God to see your truth open our ears to hear your voice our minds to understand your word and our hearts to receive everything that you have in store for us Lord we want to be more than mere hearers of your word but do us also. This is your moment and your time. We decrease. I decrease this morning. So spirit of the God, you would increase in our midst. For indeed you are the king of all kings. You are the Lord of all lords. We ask you Lord to bring a sense of comfort to all those who mourn across this land of Jamaica right now. Have loved one. Or a loved one. In a morgue line somewhere. No closure. God I pray for your peace. Your shalom. To rest upon those household. Surround them with your grace and your mercy. God. Answer the tough questions that they have. And use these. Opportunities of loved one passing. To show the world that you almighty God still remain 
the resurrection and the life. Show the world that you are God. Be exalted in the midst of all of this. Be lifted high in the midst of all of this. So that men will be drawn unto you. We give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Uh, let me give you a little, little background and biblical history and culture. Um, and let me begin by speaking a little bit about the temple. Now, the Old Testament temple was much more than just a building. If you, if you would uh, recall... There was a tabernacle, then they transitioned into the temple. But all of these were what you call types and shadow of greater truth. And so what the Old Testament speaks of in terms of calling it the temple of the Lord or, or the tabernacle, it was much more than just a building. It was the physical dwelling place of the glory of God. The temple or the tabernacle was really the representation of God among his people. So though it is called a temple, really in a spiritual sense, it speaks to a greater truth. It means that God was in their midst because a temple is a place that God dwells. Now if the physical temple um, back then was something made of stone and, and, and gold and all of these things. And that was the place that God dwelled. In the New Testament it says our bodies are the temple of the Lord. So therefore in the same way that in the Old Testament God dwelt in the physical temple made with the, the hands of men in the same way God lives in the temple. The human body, the believer in the New Testament. Amen? Now the Old Testament had several prophets. Um, the book of Isaiah to, to Malachi um, speaks of the prophets. And so there are five major prophets in the Bible. Isaiah are, are prophetic books, are major prophet books in the Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Lamentation covers the five major prophets prophetic books and then you have what you call the minor prophets so it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel right the 12 minor prophets Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi so the major prophets are considered so because they are longer and their implications are more worldwide in nature. The minor prophets are also because their books are shorter and their implications are more localized in terms of their sweep. But all of these books are important to read and are the inspired word of God. The book of Daniel, Daniel 3, the familiar stories told of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. That, and this takes place during the time of the Babylonian and Persian captivity before the people of Israel returned home. 
We spoke about this a little bit last week. They're in captivity. And after 70 years, they, they would start returning home. And some would stay in Babylon. So Daniel and his friends were carried off into captivity to serve the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. God used them in mighty ways and gave them positions of leadership to display his might and power. This well-known story was perhaps the greatest display of God's power over the power of the false gods and the earthly kings. Right? Because here it is that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and the lion's mouth was shut. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire furnace and those who threw them in were burning. And the scripture said, when they looked down, they saw another in the fire. That was the very presence of God who was with these three Hebrew boys. Now when you get to know, so this is the Babylonian rule. When you get to the Persian Empire is where Haggai picks up and Haggai begins to speak. Haggai really prophesied during the Persian period of Jewish history. Right? They started in Babylon, Babylonian captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. But the Babylonian kingdom was taken over by the kingdom of the Persians and the Medes. King Cyprus of Persia took Babylon. Alright, follow me. We're going somewhere, right? So they are in Babylon and the next nation comes and conquers Babylon. So though they were originally taken by the Babylonian, now they are under Persian rule. So now Haggai is during this time. Alright, so, so, so King Cyprus of Persia took Babylon and the Jews were shortly thereafter allowed to begin to return home. So the biblical book of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai and Zechariah, Zechariah take place during the period of time, about 200, a period of time of around 200 years. Persian kings such as Cyrus, Dar Darius, uh, Artaxerxes, and Xerxes. They are Xerxes and Artaxerxes. The Bible will make you talk. You understand me? Spanish. They played an important role as they allowed the Jews to return home to Jerusalem and God allowed favor to rest on his people. Also fulfilling prophecy of their 70 year captivity followed by a return home. So all of this was really prophesied and all of this was part of God's plan. It's amazing how God will raise up one king, remove one king so that his mandate may be accomplished. It's amazing when you read biblical history how one king would be shifted and then all of a sudden the next king came on in. To tie into the timeline that God set. You understand that the Babylonian had to be conquered for the 70 years release to take place. God is, God is truly amazing. When I think, what if they were still the Babylonian? What would have happened? God just took down Nebuchadnezzar, raised up a new empire. That new empire showed much favor to the people. So the goal of this message... And now is the time for revival. It's for us to learn how to recognize God's warning in our lives and to return our hearts and lives to our first love 
for the Lord. Where we will be completely satisfied in Him. That's the purpose of this message. So that we will return to our first love. The Lord. Where we will be completely satisfied in Him. Only He alone can satisfy. You see this message concerns something that although often ignore, is very important to our walk with the Lord. It will also help us to learn how to bring God from the, vi- the vicinity of our lives into our midst, which is His manifest presence. Amen? So there are times in our lives that you'll be wondering, when is he going to get to the notes? Listen, I have to set a good background. This is a solid foundation. If you miss this, you're going to miss the points that I'm going to give you. There are times in our lives that God gives us warnings and tries to speak to us through life circumstances. But we don't hear him or listen to his warning. Heed the warning of the Lord. Amen? I, I just, I, I could stop there. Listen, when God is warning, heed the warning. You see, we are familiar with the function of an alarm clock or a siren. They serve to get our attention and make us aware of something that needs our attention. So this morning on my way to church, a light popped up on my car. Fell in a pothole and something popped up. Listen, all the light was doing is showing me that something is wrong and it needs to be dealt with or else further down the road, it will cause things to get worse. God operates like that where he gives us warnings because further along the road, if the warning is not heeded, things are going to get worse. So God did this in scripture many times when he spoke messages through the prophets of the Old Testament. Like a loud and intrusive noise, their message was not always expected or readily accepted, but it was necessary for the people. It was necessary. I believe that this warning about revival is necessary at this time for the church of God to heed and to act upon. God is like sounding the alarm in this time. I'm sure we, are, we all have alarm clocks sitting by our beds or on our phones that play a pivotal part of our daily routine. Yeah. Uh, listen, it's amazing. Like Things always happen, right? That ties into my sermon. So this morning, um, the alarm went off and I woke my wife up. Alright? She, she turned off the alarm and went back to bed. So I woke, woke her up a little later. She got up this time. She got ready and we're going out to church. And she, I am getting ready because, you know, I have to allow her to get ready first. Because if I get ready first, then we're not going to get to church. Understand me because when she she takes longer, obviously, to get ready. Alright? But um here's what happened. She said, you know what? The alarm went off and I turned it off because I said it was Monday and I do have to exercise. 
<laughs> so she turned off the alarm and she went back to bed. All right. And think, but you know, if there was no alarm, there'll be no, there'll be no church this morning. I'm telling you, because uh, our church, church will be different this morning. But, but the alarm is there to help us. And they play a very pivotal part in our daily routine. They, set, they are set the night before to alert us that it's time to wake up and start our day. They often go off during a very inconvenient time. But nonetheless, they go off and steer us out of bed. That's like the warning signs of God. Always come at the most un- inconvenient time. But they are necessary, nonetheless. You see, we can try to ignore them. We can resist them. And even resist the call of the alarm. But they demand an immediate response. When, when, when check lights come on your engine, it demands an immediate response. Listen, when you hear the siren from the police vehicle coming, it demands an immediate response. You may think they're not going anywhere, but it's the siren says, move, get out the way. You may think like they just want to be traffic, but the siren says, move, get out the way. It's a warning whether you believe it or not that there's some danger somewhere that they are responding to. Amen? You see, although a minor prophet, Haggai sounded the warning to the Jews who had come back home to Israel after being in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. The problem was not that they were back, but their priorities and lives reflected selfishness, not godliness. They were in captivity and the time had come and they had come back to what God had promised them. And instead of being godly, the people became selfish. So Haggai sounded the alarm to wake up everyone spiritually and to point to the lessons learned in the past. The people had been back from captivity for 15 years now. 70 years ended, they came back. And 15 years they are back. Yet the rebuilding of God's temple had been neglected, delayed, and eventually ignored by the people. Though that was the reason that they came back for. I'm telling you what, many times that what happened to us. We begin to neglect, delay, we procrastinate, until eventually we ignore what God purposed us to do in the first place. So Haggai pinpointed the problem in verse 2. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come. Even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. See, the temple had been destroyed when the Babylonian came many years earlier to take them into captivity. But when asked why they had not rebuilt, rebuilt it, the Israelites who had come back to the land said, we don't have time to build the temple. Remember, we are talking about temple in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's speaking about 
our body is being the temple of God. I don't want us to forget that spiritual truth because revival calls us to pay attention to our lives. The temple of God. I don't want us to miss it. Though we are talking about an Old Testament temple, when we speak, we are making reference to the fact that God is calling us to revival. God is calling us to check our lives and get back to the business of preparing our lives for what God commissioned us to do. So the time has not come. One, one of the reasons that they didn't have the time or said they didn't have time was because of opposition. You can read that in Ezra chapter 4 from 1 to 5. You can write that down and read it. Ezra 4, 1 to 5. For the sake of time, I won't go through that. And Ezra chapter 5 from 1 to 17 tells you that because of opposition. Opposition, they didn't. But the main problem was that the people of Israel were satisfied without the temple because they were still carrying on with their religion. In other words, they were doing religion. Remember the, what the temple was, God was in the midst. The temple was where God dwelt. In other words, they were doing religion without God in the midst. And because they were doing religion, they didn't see the need for God. Wait to hear me this morning. And that's the real problem. That you can do religion without God. And that's what was happening to the people. As long as their religious rituals continued, they didn't see a need to restore the temple, the place where God dwelt. They were content to have God in the vicinity of their lives. They felt they didn't need Him in the midst of their lives, which is what the temple represented. But there's a clear difference between a life that reflects true worship of God and one that acknowledges God on the edge of life. Sometimes people need a stark reminder and an alarm to be wrong before they realize their sinfulness. This problem was not unique to the time of the prophets. It is a problem that's still plaguing Christians even today. We all recognize the need for a genuine revival and we know the alarm has been sounded. We all know this is not the first time you're here and we need revival. Growing up as a child, I hear that we need revival. Ever since I've been in church, I've been hearing, we need revival. I've been singing, we need a revival in our soul. I must apply to the blood of Jesus. So we know that we need revival. What we do need to do in order to right the ship. How do we get to the position of putting God first in our lives. Because that's real revival. Not just having God in the vicinity. But have him in the midst. The answer is simple. We need a revival. That will shake our comfort. And put us in right relationship with the Lord. That's what we need. Shake. Our lives in such a way. That we move from religion. To relationship. From reformation to revival. Remember I told you that reformation is a change mostly on the outside. Reformation changes your look. Just as some new clothes can change your appearance. And if you, do, if, if you go shopping at the right place, you can change your appearance. Have a reformation. You could reform 
that doesn't mean you have changed who you are. It just means that you have changed how you look. A hairstyle or even new contact lenses or glasses can be a reformation. But that's not a revival. Because a revival comes from within. God had alarm clocks in the Bible called prophets. Prophets were called in to wake up the people and alert them that so, to something that God wanted them to hear. So I am, just, I am just the alarm clock for God this morning to let you know that God wants us to experience revival. Just like our modern alarm clock, the prophets were often unappreciated and people tried to ignore or even resist them. But God wanted his people to be roused out of their cozy situation so that he could accomplish something great with them. I'm going to say this again. That the problem with Jamaica is not the world. It is the church. Until the church is really set on fire, the nation won't burn for God. And so this morning, I want to bring us to us. This temple. And I want to start up by saying, I'm going to give you the principles. Number one, don't be satisfied with just having God in the vicinity. Too many people in church are just doing church. They get into church, but the church has not gotten into them. Amen? Many of us come to church with God in our general vicinity, but we go home and he's not in our midst. God wants to be in our midst. Remember, all the temple represented, whenever they saw the temple, they would know that God is in our midst. And the people got to a place where there was no temple, but they still convinced themselves that God was in their midst because they were doing religious activity. Is that us this morning? That we have all the religious activities and rituals down to a T. But the temple lies in ruins. See, there's a difference between God general and God specific. God general means God is just there. Specific means God is in your midst. And that's where we need to get to. God in it is in my midst. He is in me. He's living. He's moving. He's shaping my life. He's changing my life. He's dictating my life. How I operate from day to day. He's leading me. Because God is either on the outside or in the Because there's a difference in knowing of God and experiencing God. These people came back knowing of God. But until God is in the midst, you haven't experienced God. That is why many people need an encounter. Because an encounter will cause you to experience God. You see, Moses knew about God. But then he had to experience the burning bush to have an encounter with God. Jacob knew about God but he had to wrestle with the angel of the Lord to have a different experience and everything changed same thing with David listen until you have an experience with God you just know about God there's nothing that distinguishes you 
distinguishes us. So God is good to everybody. God is good to you in specific ways. And your eyes are just acknowledging God or praising God. Because one, God is good. God is just a good God. Even the man who is out here stealing, God is good to him. People can't believe, yeah, God, listen, the fact that he's alive, God is good. I know, I know it's hard for you to fathom that, but understand, God is good to everybody, not just Christians. Because God is good. God is love. God loves everybody. Christians and non-Christians. So knowing that God is good doesn't mean that you're praising God because he's good. Because praise comes from experiencing God. And there's a difference when you experience God and praise him than when you experience goodness and say thank you for being good. Because even a man who don't have a relationship with him will say thanks. Me give God thanks. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever heard unbelievers say, hey, me give God thanks to life? Because even unbelievers know that God is the giver of life. But they haven't experienced the life that the believer have experienced with God. It is the experience that makes the difference and shapes and changes things when we know that God is in the midst. See, our life, number two, our life will indicate whether we have returned to God. People will know by looking at you. By our fruits we will be known. Have, have you returned to God? Listen, I'm talking to you watching online. And people who have not been able to come to church. It's not your fault that you have not been able to come to church. No one can blame you. But here is what must be our responsibility. Have we walked away from our God? And left the temple in ruin. The temple of our lives. Because that's our responsibility. Being in physical church. Is based on some curfew orders. That we have no control over. Because we submit to the the law of the land. But here's the thing. Walking away from your relationship with God. Is our responsibility. And we will know. If you have returned. Your returning to the Lord. Has nothing to do with a call from a friend. It has to do until with experiencing God through a divine encounter. So our life will indicate whether we have returned to God. So treat the problem and not the symptom. You see, Israel's neglect of the temple was an indicator light saying something was wrong. The fact that after 15 years, they still did not start any work on the temple of God was an indicator that something is off. The fact that you have not paid attention to your relationship with God throughout the time of this lockdown is indicating that something is wrong on the inside. The fact that your prior life has been affected. The fact that your praise has been affected. The fact that your devotion has been affected. Means that something is wrong on the inside. So don't just do part of the work. 
A full 180 degree turn may be necessary. So here it is. That they, guess what happened to them? They did the right thing by coming into the vicinity. <laughs> we can do the right thing. They, they came in. Listen, they came into the vicinity because they came from captivity into the, the land. And here's what happened. They didn't complete the turn. A full 180 degree turn is necessary. What does that mean? Number one, we must turn from our sin. We must turn from our sin. Zechariah 1 verse 4 says, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, This is what the Lord of the armies says. Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. Return now. When you return, you return. It says, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Revival means you return from your evil ways and from all your evil deeds. You have to turn from your sin. Church, we have to turn from our sin. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their sins. You, we, have, we have to turn from our sins. Revival requires that we turn away from sin. A 180, not 360. Because you know, if you make 360, you go right where you start. Because many of us, we make 360 turn. We make a complete circle. We come right through the process and come back right back into the sin. No, no. It's a 180. It means a 180 means you are in the opposite direction. There must be a turning from our sin. That's why Zechariah says you have to turn from your, return from your evil deeds and evil ways. That's real revival. The second thing, not just turn from sin, but when you turn from sin, you have to turn to the Lord. You have to, we have to turn from our sins and then we also need to turn to the Lord. Why? Because the reason why we had sinned in the first place is because we turned away from the Lord. So it is like, it's like this, right? It makes no sense to make 180 and don't do anything. You have to now fix your eyes on Jesus. You can't live your life in limbo. You can't say, I am going to stop sinning and just live life. No. You have to keep your focus. Jesus has to become the center of your life. The focus of the life. The cornerstone of your life. The one that holds things together. The one who puts things together. He has to be the core. He has to be the high point of life. Not just, I'm going to stop this. But now I'm going to start loving on my God. Verse 6 of Zechariah chapter 1, he says this. But did my word Words and my statutes, which I commanded my servant, the prophets, not overtake your fathers. He said, then they repented. This is the 180 degree turn. Repented and said, just as the Lord of the armies planned to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so shall, so he has dealt with us. Have to return to the Lord. You can't just stop sinning. You have to return to the Lord. Stop sinning and turn to the Lord. Depend on Him and rely on Him. Luke 15 verse 17 says, in the New American Standard Bible, it says, but when He came to His senses, revival is coming to your senses. 
How many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread? But I am dying here from hunger. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, he said he got up from where he was and he returned to the father. He didn't just come to his senses. It's not enough to say, I need to stop sinning. That's good. That's a good start. But the turn is completed when you turn to the Lord in complete surrender. And say, here I am Lord. I surrender to you. The problem is, some people just want to stop sinning. The good life don't save you. The God life saves you. And there is a difference. With the good life and the God life. The God life causes you to enjoy a good life. But the good life has no guarantee of a God life. See, we have indicator lights, like I tell you, in our vehicles. Our vehicles all have indicator lights or dummy lights, some people call them. These lights tell us that there is a bigger problem, a deeper problem with our vehicle. The actually... The actual indicator light is not the problem. But it functions to tell us that something is not working properly. When your engine light comes on, you don't try and fix the, the engine light. You check the engine. <laughs> right. Amen? So we can try to turn off the indicator light. Have you ever done that? You have a light coming on in your car? And, and I've seen people ignore the problem, you know. They even say, no, man, it's all right, man. It's not no big problem. I said, the, the, the cars are very sensitive. So they go to someone to do some engine thing to get the light off and don't check the problem. Let me tell you something. It's like all the cars are very sensitive and every little thing, the alarm light comes on, as people of God, that's how sensitive we are. And when things are wrong, the light, come on. And it must be checked. Right? We can try to turn off the, indicate, turn off the indicator light, but that doesn't mean we have fixed the problem that, 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 that was there. So many people want to come to church knowing there is an indicator light problem. But they just want the warning light turned off for their convenience. And revival is way more than that. See, the problem is often our priorities. We make time for the things that matter most to us. The people said the time has not yet come. But the truth is, if it matters to you, you'll make time for it. Let me say that again. If it matters to you, if it matters to me, we will make time for it. It's part of our human nature. Schedules are shuffled for what we consider top priority. There are certain things in your life that no matter what, you're going to change up the schedule. Do you agree with me? Yeah, I mean, I can't give it a general one. If your family, your wife, your kids call you, or husband, guess what? You shift up the schedule because they are important to you. There are certain things in life that are important to us. Because we make time for what matters most to us. 
But Haggai 1, 3 to 4, listen to what the people said. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to live in your panel houses while this house remains desolate? Now remember, when I speak about house, I'm not speak our temple. I'm not making reference to the, what the Old Testament temple used to be, that physical building. It's not about the church building a building because the temple represents we are the temple of God. In other words, the real truth of the text is, if you take it into a New Testament context, is this. Um, you're saying it's not time for you. you, you, you you're taking care of your own personal life. Doing your religious stuff. When your relationship with God, you're not paying attention to it. You're not paying attention to your relationship with God. Because the truth is, time is not often taken as much as made. Meaning, you can make time. Listen, you can make time for your devotions. You can make time for your prayer time. You can make time. Listen, no matter how busy you are, if it is important, you can make time for God. Time is made. Time is made because you can shift your schedule. So if the people really wanted to build the temple, they could have made time. It was not important to them. And I think that's one of the big problems with many of us. Maybe it is the cares of the world, but the things of God seem to be losing the place of importance and priority in our lives. A turn to God begins to happen when our schedules change. A turn to God happens when our schedules change. Your schedule needs to change. God must get the most of your time and the best of your time. And until that happens, is there really any revival? We are returning to God when He takes top priority. Is he first place? Is he the number one? Is he the most important one right now? He must take top priority. These are the days, church, when God needs to be top priority in the life of every single believer. Watch this. We don't reposition God. We reposition ourselves. Because God does not move or change who he is. Listen, God has not moved. What we have done, we have repositioned ourselves. So we need to reposition ourselves to a place where God again is number one in our lives. Because he's always number one. Whether we want it to believe it or not. Because we can't... Listen... Hey, church, when I, when, I, when, I, when I saw this in the scripture this week, I said, hold on. But, but God is really number one. God is never third place in my life. He's not in my life. Because if he's not first place, he's not there. <laughs> that, that's the truth. Like, we feel like, okay, well, you know what? You have this in first place, that in, and you have God in. God cannot be third place. God cannot be second place. He's either first place or we are out of place. If he's not top priority in your life, 
The temple is in ruins. And you are doing rituals. That's it. Because it cannot be in no other position but first place. Let all the other gods fade away until there is only you. You are my passion. You are my one priority. Only you. Only you. So we must affix ourselves to him as our steady point. Anything else can change. But one thing, we must resolve the one thing that will not change is who is number one in my life. See, the Bible often speaks of him being uh, first. Speaks about giving the first part of everything to God. Jesus must have first place. Don't want to read all of this, but if you go to Deuteronomy, I challenge you to read these scriptures, those Ezra scriptures I spoke to you about, and the scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 26. It says, And it shall come to pass, it shall, it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, that you possess it and dwell in it. That you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. To put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall go to the one who is a priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your, to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. This is Deuteronomy 26. Verse 4 says, That the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. It goes on and speaks about, the, the, this, the scripture is really teaching, if you read all of it, about the principle of first fruit. And many times the church takes this to preach on, on, on money. And it's way more than money. The scripture is teaching us the principle of putting God, our, our, our understanding that God is first place. Not put him in there, but understanding that this is where he is. He exists in a place called first priority. And he must be treated that way. And so Colossians 1 verse 18 says, He also is the head of the body, the church. And, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Simply put, it has been declared already. Jesus Christ is first place in everything. And we remember that in the scripture. Colossians 1 verse 18. Jesus Christ is first place in everything. When it comes to your work, Jesus is first place. When it comes to your time, Jesus is first place. When it comes to your education, Jesus is first place. When it comes to your marriage, Jesus is first place. When it comes to your family, Jesus is first place. When it comes to the church, Jesus is first place. He is declared to be the first place in everything. And so Matthew 6, 33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be provided to you. So even in your seeking, the first person to seek is God. Nothing else. Not only wants to be first place, but he also wants to be our first love. 
He wants to be your first love. So anybody else? Listen, everybody needs to know. Husband, wife, kids need to know that they are not first place. God is. And I, tell, I always tell people this. The, the, the worst thing you can do to your family is put them before God in your life. Because then they become idols. And every idol must come down. And they need to know that. Husbands need to know it. Wives need to know it. Listen, pastors need to know that in the church, they are not first place. God is. And if the church starts start treating its pastors, there are many different names of them, the bishops and the apostles and the prophetess, like they are first place, then they are becoming idols. And idols always fall. To the angel of the church in Ephesus right. To the one who holds, this is Revelation 2 from 1 to 4. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Says this. I know your deeds and your labor and perseverance. And that you cannot tolerate evil people. And that you put those who call themselves apostles to the test. And they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance. And have endured an un an account of my name. And you have not become weary. Good commendation. Because it starts with the commendation. Good commendation. The, 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 these church people, they tested the apostles and found them to be false. Good job. They, they, did, they persevered, they never got weary. Good job. They never tolerated evil. Good job. You'd say that perfect Christians. But there is a but. But I have this against you. That you have left your first love. So somehow in all the good that they were doing. God was not top priority. That, that, that should bother us to consider our ways. Because we could be doing a lot of good stuff but far from our first love. See, once you put God first, once he becomes your priority, you not only turn from your sin, you're returning to your first love. You're putting God first and therefore calling God down in your midst into this temple. Our problem is oftentimes we are satisfied with a leftover relationship with God. And he is to have our best, not just our leftovers. I'm going to show you that best of your time, best of your work, best of your ability. This is one of the things that many of us struggle with, right? Like, it's never too late to get saved. But there are people who wait until they're about to die. You know, you're giving God your leftover life. Good that you're going to heaven. You're saved. Salvation is sure. But you, I believe that God wants us to give him the best days of our lives. The, 
think about any general relationship that you're going to have. Just relationships in general. You don't want the worst years of people's life. You want the best years. That's why people want to be with the same person forever. They, they don't want when you understand me, oh, I can't want to go down. You know, no, no, that don't work. But some people believe, I'm going to enjoy my life and then give God the what left. He wants the best, not what is left. Amen? Number five, God demands our first fruit. Uh, we often don't give God our first fruits. Again, I'm not singling this out to money and finances. So I don't want to get that impression. Because first fruit is more than money. Most Christians give only a small percentage of what they should be given. In every era of the life. And even for me, it's something that I have to guard my heart. That I, I, I'm not giving God the worst. Like, I shouldn't be praying and falling asleep because I'm so tired. If I'm going to pray to a God who is first place, he needs to get me when I'm most awake and alive. Listen, my devotion times can be when I'm tired the most. Because it is devoted time. And that is why your wife wants your undivided attention. Your kids want that. And if God is greater than all of these other relationships, then the best of my day must go to God. So I need to work out in my own schedule. What time am I at my best? And that time I'm going to devote it to my God. When I have the most energy, when I feel the most alive, that's the time I want to devote to God. God sees our lack of giving, a selfishness and stealing. Because we give him a small, small percentage of what we should be given. Malachi 3 8 says, Would anyone rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, How have you robbed me? In tithes and in offering. You see, first fruit are more than money. First fruit in, involves energy and physical work. These things are also first fruit. Gifts are also first fruit. Uh, all of these things that God has blessed us with, our abilities are also first fruit. And we need to give God the best of all that we have and all that we do. So focus, focus on a clear mind are important fruits. So when I come to God, I come with a focused mind and I come with a clear mind before my God. I'm not distracted by everything. I'm not distracted by this. I'm not distracted by that. I used to be like church. I'm telling you because I used to be like this. I used to tell people like, "Oh yeah, man, I'm 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 doing my devotion." Until I learned that you can't have devotion and it not be devoted time. It's not devotion. Devotion has to be devoted time. It has to be devoted time. So if I have other things going on, it's not devotion. Like, like if right now you're cooking, you're not worshipping in the church service. You may be listening. God is in the vicinity, but he's not in the midst. 
Because if you devote this time to God, you can't be cooking, washing, and cleaning. Because God don't want that. He can't take it. I don't want you to feel bad. I'm just sounding the alarm. You can't have devotions and be watching news at the same time. That is why, that is why you can't have devotion at work. Because work time is devoted time to another God. It is, to the, it is time dedicated to the boss God. And you can't take God time and give to your boss. So don't take your boss time and give to God. Amen. Number six as we close. We must consider our ways. Let's consider our ways, church. We must think about what we are doing for the Lord. We must consider our ways. Two times in the text the scripture says, consider your ways. I like how it makes it personal and general. Because it was speaking to the general people, but any individual who reads it, it's saying specifically, consider your ways. Mean that as a pastor, I must consider my ways. All of us must consider our ways. We must think about what we are doing for the Lord. We must consider what the Lord says before acting. Malachi 1.7 says, You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But how, but you say, how are we, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. If you read that whole story, it goes on and says that you wouldn't do that to other people. But, so why do we believe we can do it to God? I don't know about you, but I'm very sure that my wife would not be satisfied that she says, listen, I want to spend some time with you. Well, no wife, not just my wife, I think. And imagine you go out on a date. This time, it is the wife who takes you out. It don't happen often, but every now and then, a wife decides that she's going to treat a husband. Normally, it's the other way around where the, the husband takes out the wife. Amen. But every now and then there, there are some wives who will invite you out to dinner and they will show for drive. You will show for driven to dinner and they will pay for the meal for you. And imagine they do all of that and you are at the table on your cell phone texting and talking. Listen, that would be probably the last date you're getting show for driven or that is going to be paid for. Or the date may not be completed. Why? Because the sacrifice that she has made to meet with you demands that you do nothing else than meet with her. Make sense? The sacrifice that God has made to come and be in our midst demands that we do nothing else but focus on him. 
we need to consider our ways. So what the scripture is saying that anything you put on the altar in your time with God, in your time with God, anything that takes away from God in that time means that you're putting something defiled. There's something wrong with it. So our efforts are in vain if we don't obey the Lord. Our contentment can only be found in the Lord. In other words, I'm going to be content that if I dedicate the best of my, my time, the best of my resources, the best of my life to the Lord, I will still find contentment in that. You see, if you are content, contentment, contentment is a key in your time with God. I'm telling you because if you are perplexed by the demands of life and the things of life, if you feel like I need more, I need to do more, I need to get more, you're, you're not content. And if you're not content, none of your time is going to be valuable time. I'll tell you that. You, because if your time with God is wrong as a believer, then all the other times are going to be wrong. So Paul agrees that the secret of contentment is found in one place. And one place only. It is found in the Lord. And so he says in Philippians 4, 11 to 12, Not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Many people will tell you, if I have everything that I need, I would give God a whole heap of time. Paul would say to you, you don't know contentment. If you leave, you need more money, and you need your own house, your own car, and then, I know that if I had all of this, then I'd be able to give God the best of me. You don't know contentment. Because Paul is really saying, when you know the secret of contentment, whether you have a little or not, God is number one. He gets the best of all that I am and all that I have. Because that's a sign of real contentment. But what if I lose my job? I've learned the secret of contentment. I've learned how to be satisfied in the Lord whether I'm hungry or I'm filled. Because being constantly discontent is a sign of a needed heart change. Anytime you find yourself being discontent, check the temple. Consider your ways. Because discontent is a sign that the temple, the temple lies in ruins. And so, there's no problem in being blessed, church. But there's a problem when you leave God out of the blessing. And if we have returned to the Lord, if we return to the Lord, I promise you this. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we can ask or think. 
If we return to the Lord, then He can sustain us during life rough times. He's a keeper. He's a shade upon our right hand. Amen? Don't be religious while the temple lies in ruins. Is God in your midst this morning? That's the question. Is God in your midst? Or you are just in the vicinity? Come on, just bow your heads and let's all consider our ways this morning. Me, you, all of us, those at home, let's consider our ways. We stop, Lord God. And we take heed to the warning signs. The indicator lights suggesting and telling us that something is wrong in the engine of our lives, our hearts. So we turn from sin and we turn to the Lord this morning. We make a 180 degree turn. We fix our eyes on you and declare you to be our steady point. God, you are our first love. We return to our first love this morning. And God, we commit in the name of Jesus that we will give you the best of us. Our best days belong to you. The best of our resources belong to you. The best of our time belongs to you. We stop to consider our ways, oh God. With God, we say, forgive us for trying to reposition you. You're unchanging, unshakable, unstoppable. Nothing can move you. You're either first place in our life or there's no place for you in our life. Maybe you're watching online and he isn't number one in your life this morning. Maybe you've been waiting for years and you're waiting to fix this and fix that and then hopefully when you get it all fixed and all sorted out and stuff and you're close to you know good old age you'll say well now I can give my life to the Lord he's challenging you this morning to give the best days of your life to him and that's right now the people said now is not the time but God is saying to us this morning now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. You can come to your senses like that prodigal son and return to the father's house. Just ask him to come into your heart. Confess your sins. Ask him to come in and be your Lord and your Savior. 
Can we just, just, just pray this simple prayer? Just say, Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinner needing forgiveness. Just invite him to the Lord, come into my heart today and be my Lord and my Savior. And tell him how much you need him. Say, God, I need you more than life itself. And confessed him, say, You are my first love. Come on, just thank him, say, Lord, I thank you for saving me. Thank him for revival, say, Lord, I thank you for revival this morning. Revive me. Again, oh Lord. Set a fire within me that burns for you, God. church every time listen stand here this morning I just think about all the awesome encounters that men and women of God had in the Bible and how that whole experiencing of God brought them to a new place maybe it's been a while since you have had one of those divine encounters that, that shifting moment where you know that you know that God turned up and moved you from one place to another. And so I want us to pray right now. So God, I, I need that moment with you, God. I need that moment with you, God, when you show up in all your glory. God, and I encounter you in such a deep way that change, that shifting takes place in the name of Jesus. Come on, just cry out to him and ask him that. Just ask him that. Just as Moses had that experience and Jacob had that experience and David had that experience and Zacchaeus had that experience and that woman at the well, she had that experience and then everything changed and everything shifted in that moment. And now you had one when you were a teenager and you had one 10 years ago and you had one 12 years ago and you had one last year but this is a different time and we just need God. God we need a new encounter. Hallelujah. If you cry out to him, he will hear you. God always responds to the heart that cries out in desperation. He doesn't respond merely by your words. But as he looks and he sees and he hears a desperate cry of your heart, 
you're going to experience him in such a way. It will be better than the last one. It will be one like no other. And so I declare shifting in the name of Jesus. In the season of revival. I declare that God is shifting you in the spirit in the name of Jesus. Pray wisdom, pray revelation, pray prophetic utterances and the steering of the gift of God in your life this morning. Pray that the mission of God and the mandate of God on your life will become manifest in the name of Jesus. I pray for spiritual clarity. I declare spiritual clarity that that that. You will not be confused about what God is doing in the name of Jesus. I declare boldness for for someone who you want to step out in faith for something, concerning something. I declare that the spirit of fear is broken. I declare that you are as bold as a lion because you are the righteous child of the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Oh, we bless you. We bless you, Jesus. Come on, just stand. Mean you're at home, come on, just, just stand and lift your hands. Let's just spend a couple moments and just say, in our lives, we're just going to sing that and just declare that in our lives, you'll be lifted high this morning. Come on, just lift your hands in, in worship to him. Just begin to say, God, be lifted high. Begin to speak to him in worship and in song. Just say, Lord, be lifted high. Be lifted high. Be lifted high. Be lifted high. Just tell him that. Say, be lifted high. Come on, just lift your hands this morning.